never too late. Hit it. Life has to be lived forward, but you can only understand it by looking back. back. Mm-hmm. It was the summer of 1996, Newtown, Connecticut. I was 18 years old and a junior in high school, again. I had dropped out midway through my first junior year and then returned the following, realizing a GED wouldn't cut it for me. I couldn't stand school, so I was motivated to get out as fast as I could, trying to cram a remaining year and a half into a year. And I did all right with stray days when I returned, but due to a testing snafu, a rather dickish teacher, I had one class I would have to retake the following year. So whereas I was aiming for graduating with the class of 96, I instead finished high school very uneventfully at around 9.30 on a Tuesday morning the following winter. I worked a lot while finishing up school, various jobs, until the summer when I found work with a septic company I would stay with for the next year and a half. Newtown was switching over every facility within its city limits from individual septic tanks to a gray water treatment plant. Our job was to find, drain, and crush each individual tank and then directly connect each home to the newly laid pipes from the town. I got to run the backhoe and drive big old trucks, each painted fire engine red, and shit talk my co-workers on the CB radios. I remember Gary Loomis, one of my co-workers. What a great guy. Loomy, Loomy, why so gloomy? Because your girlfriend wants to do me. Over. Mr. Adams got a big kick out of that one. Quit fucking around on the radios. That was pretty fucking funny, though. (laughs) Mr. Adams always laughed like I'd imagine a mentally challenged horse would. It was one of the shittiest jobs I've ever had, but it was fun. We had competing companies too. Hickey, if it's Icky, call Hickey. Hanky, if it's Stanky, call Hanky. We were Thomas M. Adams and Sons. But that summer when I wasn't working, I spent time with friends, but mostly hung out with my girlfriend, Megan, who was preparing to head off to her first year of college. The summer was going quickly, so all us kids decided to spend one last night together at our friend Karen's house for a real-life slumber party. My best friend, Alan, his girlfriend, Gina, another couple whom I don't remember their names, but I do remember she pretended to have cancer, though. Tricked us all. And Karen and her boyfriend were there. And Karen's father but he made himself scarce as us kids snuck smokes and drinks in the finished basement, where that evening, like a bunch of squeaky doors being opened ever so slowly in an attempt to not make noise, giggles, rustling, soft moans, and shushing sounds were masked only once by the not-so-subtle sound of Alan letting one rip to be a kid. In just two weeks, we might not see each other again. Ever. 
It was time to just have fun. In the morning, we sat around the kitchen table, just next to the foyer, awaiting our rides, the nine of us in total, including Karen's father. I'm a pretty antsy person and a smoker, so in and out of the house I went, checking on our ride. A large raised ranch, two-car garage, set back 300 feet from the road, encased in thick pines. A long red brick walkway leading to the also red front door, stark amongst the white backdrop of real wood siding. The door swung open, inward. The quintessential New England storm door opened out, typically armed with glass, now unarmed with screen. The warm summer breeze was allowed in. The bugs were not. The storm door thwapped shut as I walked my self-appointed post in and out of the house. I wasn't paying much attention to the conversation between Karen's father and all us kids, but he was asking about our next steps in life, which may be why I was avoiding it. Everyone else seemed so certain. I didn't have a clue. They hear yet? Alan asked, as second language, sarcastic as he could. They are, I told him. Really? He began to stand up. No, not really. You asshole. Sorry, Mr. Garen. The foyer where I stood staring out the door was large and open with a double stairway, one leading up, the other leading down to the basement where we had spent the night. Immediately off the foyer was the kitchen through a rather large entryway, basically an open floor layout. From there, the group could see outside, but none of them were really looking. That was my job. I would walk in and out and then stand in the foyer, ten feet between them and the door as conversation continued. I was standing my self-appointed post in the foyer as I looked up to the door again, preparing to walk out, again. But this time, in the doorway, on the other side of the screen, was a little girl looking in, maybe nine years old, standing somber, arms at her sides, blue jeans, white t-shirt, blonde hair, just staring at me, deadpan. And as my eyes met hers, she looked away, down, and to the side. Her head followed, down and away as well. And then she turned and walked away, out of sight. Immediately, I went to the door and walked outside, apparently abruptly, as I would come to find out. I turned toward the direction she had walked away in. Nothing. Then turned right. Nothing. I walked left to the edge of the house and then right. I walked the perimeter. I checked the trees, the shrubs, even peered through the woods to the neighbors' homes. Nothing. And then I walked back in. Everyone was staring at me, silent. What was that? Alan asked. What? You walked outside as though someone was here. Someone was, I said, thinking they must have seen her too. Who? they asked. I was confused they hadn't. There was a little girl standing in the doorway, I said. A little girl, they asked mockingly. I felt stupid. I'd seen her. I know I had. But no one else did. Do you have a neighbor that might be playing around here? I asked knowing very well the neighboring houses were separated by acre parcels. Karen and her father both confirmed, probably no. 
There was no one there but us, sitting at the table, and me, pacing back and forth. I was at a loss, and the teasing continued. But I let it go because there was nothing else to say. And soon our rides arrived, and we were gone. The summer ended weeks later, and Megan went off to Yukon. I stayed behind. I know what you're thinking, or maybe not. I know what I think you're thinking, that Megan and I ended there. But we stayed together for nine years. Moved to Colorado, got engaged. But she has a nine-year-old of her own now. I'm still friends with Alan, almost 30 years later. He's in North Carolina. I'm in Colorado. Megan's in Maine. We spoke of the ghost I saw that day, Megan and I, not thinking that's what it was, but wondering what then. But as it goes, friendships and stories fade, and within months we lost touch with most of those people, and didn't speak of the little girl again. Yukon, although an hour and a half away, might as well have been a thousand miles by ferry, and Megan and I spent most of our weekends there, our friends heading off to schools much further away. A year and a half later, I was hanging out in Megan's neighbor's dorm room in the quad on campus, a section of four dormitory buildings. Friday nights gave way to open doors in the dormitories, so it was a come-and-go policy, as you please. My cousin, PJ, hold your jokes, was in a relationship with our then-best friend, Christine, in the dorm room to Megan's left. Jupiter, a large and perpetually sweaty girl, just another of Megan's incredibly odd friends, was to her right. College was weird. I was hanging out on Christine's side that evening, as usual. She had great tits, and I was 19. And we had a not-so-obvious, maybe, crush on each other. It wasn't until years later, but we did eventually hook up. Megan excitedly came into the room. Guess who's coming up this evening, she asked. I couldn't imagine who she'd be so emphatic about. Karen and I had developed a rather awesome relationship with each other over that summer. I think I always felt alone when I was with Megan. Not seen, not understood. So there was a part of me always searching for something else. Not that Karen or Christine were it, but I enjoyed those connections nonetheless. So when she told me Karen would be coming that evening, I was actually pretty dang excited. And although I hadn't thought of the little girl standing in the doorway in some time, it was the first thing that came to mind when she told me. When Karen arrived, I was sitting on the top bunk in Jupiter's room. She gravitated toward me immediately, and I hopped down and gave her a big hug. She actually didn't know I'd be there and was very excited, but for a different reason. I need to talk to you, Dave, she said as she pulled me into the hallway. Megan came too. Do you remember that day at my house, the last time we all saw each other, she asked. I do, of course. It was the day I saw the girl. You remember that, she said. Yeah, how could I forget? Well, after you all left that morning, my father sat me down and we had a conversation. He told me that one evening he arrived home from work. All of us kids were supposed to be at our mom's house, but 
When he pulled into the driveway, he saw my younger sister sitting, as she always does, at her desk by the window in her upstairs bedroom. My dad thought nothing of it, other than it's odd she's not with her mother, but that happens sometimes. Us kids decide to shift homes last minute. Until a few minutes later, when she didn't come down to say hi, because surely she'd seen his headlights pull into the driveway. It's dark out there, and we live in the woods, she told me, but nothing. And so he went upstairs, and that's when he got scared and searched the house, just like you did in the yard that day. She wasn't there, Dave. And so he called my mom, and sure enough, there she'd been all day. Now, mind you, this was 1998. Cell phones were not quite a thing yet. Megan and I didn't get our first phones until 2001. Facebook was non-existent. MySpace, maybe? But I'm not even sure we own computers, so contacting someone wasn't all that easy back then. Karen went on to tell me that her dad saw the girl one other time, and I don't recall the circumstance, but it troubled them all the same. He kept it from us kids, she told me, because what do you do with that information? He didn't want to scare us too, and he wasn't even sure that he saw what he saw, or even what he saw. But then you showed up that day, and I don't know if you noticed, but my dad went silent. The temperature in the room changed for sure, I told her. Our house is relatively new among the surrounding houses in the neighborhood, so my dad started digging into its history. The house that was there before ours, a 19th century home, burned down sometime in the 50s, and a mother and her daughter were killed in the fire. Newtown, where I grew up, has a rich history of documented and undocumented ghost sightings. Ed and Lorraine Warren, the famous ghost hunters, were one town over in Monroe. And I remember one event making the front page of the Newtown Bee when I was in elementary school, around the same time as the Challenger explosion, 1985. A couple had returned home from vacation to their large Victorian on Main Street to find that candle wax had been dripped throughout their home. Floors, furniture, tables, countertops, every room, everywhere. Pictures of it were in the paper. As they were searching the house, the woman found herself upstairs in their master bedroom, peering out the window to the road. Parked in front of their home was a vehicle with four people in it, and as she was looking down, they all turned and stared up at her. But a report stated that none of them had faces. That one always creeped me out. Many people who are now familiar with Newtown don't know this, but we were home to the state's largest mental facility, Fairfield Hills Hospital, which shut down in 1995. I grew up playing Little League on their fields, which state maintained were the best in town. Google Earth it, you can see the fields clearly. But as we played ball, the patients roamed around us, and there was no awareness back then of not having them mingle with children. I don't know what made me think of that, other than the new town I grew up in was kind of creepy. Years later, when the facility shut down, me and several friends broke in, which was as easy as opening the front door. And all our lives, we heard of the tunnels 
connecting the main campus's 16 Ivy League-style buildings spanning 770 acres of bucolic land, as well-pruned as the fields we played ball on. But we were convinced they stretched further to the lesser-known buildings, and we were the type of kids to go find out. And so we did. And as it turned out, we were right. I remember a very wide stairway leading down to a door, which led down a not-so-wide stairway to a second door. And there it was, highlighted in the movie Sleepers. These tunnels were, in fact, far more disturbing experienced in person. Extremely long, dimly lit with faded yellow light boxes every 50 feet or so. The solid cement hallways gave way to occasional cages for storage and windowless rooms for nothing that felt good to any of us. And then we found it. We'd seen it our whole lives from the outside, but there it was from within. Located almost off the property, heading in the direction of the state's highest security prison, still in operation. Our school bus would pass by every day, which the height gave a better purview. This odd, round, dug into the ground stone structure with bars for windows, dirt floors, and one door. Not leading out though, but rather leading in and underground. This is what we wanted to see. Our main reason for getting into the tunnels. And this is what we found after walking the two thirds of a mile. Me and Dave, other Dave, being the first to reach the door. We could hear the breathing of our friends still hundreds of feet behind us, like whispering through a long pipe. Even though we were all separated, it sounded like we were on top of each other. A thick, impenetrable, locked steel door spanning the width of the hallway with one word written on it. Laboratory. We found straight jackets that day, and rubber rooms, gurneys with straps on them. Enough shit to make you want to get the hell out of there. And when we did, we were chased in our vehicles by campus security until we decided to outrun them. We were outlaws in our youth, but we needed to be. It was an odd place to grow up and out of the new town I knew. has always stuck with me, what to think of it, what to make of it. But as my friend Ian put it, sometimes experiences aren't meant to be made into something else, just experienced. And I think with something like that, seeing a little girl that nobody else saw, it's easy to allow your mind to roam, asking questions like, why me and nobody else? What does it mean? But asking too much can detract from the experience. Life unfolds as it will, and I'm not so sure it's my job to go searching for meaning in everything. Of course, that's spoken by someone who can't seem to stop searching for meaning in everything. 
but maybe that's how I came to this point. Be curious always, but let it unfold as it will. I was looking for my ride when she showed up that day, so who the hell knows what we'll find while we're looking for something else. Darwin spent 40 years on and off writing a book about worms. Edison attempted the light bulb 1,000 times, but these aren't things they dedicated their lives to. It was just shit they did while they were doing other shit. I'm not so sure the point is to get lost in these endeavors, but rather allow them to get lost in you when they resurface, if and when they do. Kate Bush received $2.3 million for a song she'd written 30 plus years prior, when Stranger Things made it famous on Netflix. Netflix didn't exist when she wrote the song in 1985. The game show, Jeopardy, has homage from a line from Hamlet. The movie Wayne's World made famous the song Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. And maybe I was meant to see the girl that day to validate Karen's father. Who the hell knows? But there I go again, attempting to figure it out. I don't really know, and maybe I never will. But let's end this with a joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? Thank you for listening to this episode of Never Too Late. Stories and more from me, David.